So, James. We continue our series in James. Faith. Faith in action. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to James chapter 2. We'll be in verses 14 through 26. And the title of our sermon this morning is this. Is empty faith, is empty faith saving faith? Question mark. I was asked this past week if James has been a difficult letter to go through. Uh, to preach through. And I initially said no. But the more I've thought about it, this has been a difficult letter to go through, I think. Uh, Difficult in two ways. First, uh, I don't like having my toes stepped on. (laughs) And James has commanded faithful followers of Christ to take action, to pursue joy, to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, and to value all. We've all probably seen some areas in our life in which we have not taken action as we should have. But praise God. Praise God for how He uses His Word to convict us, to shape us, and certainly to guide us. Well, the second reason uh, James has been difficult in some ways is, uh, at least for me, I have a natural bent. A natural bent to earn my way with God. We read commands, stipulations in James, and we might default back to a mindset that says, Jesus, he's not enough. Nope. Nope, he's not enough. I have to earn favor with God. But as we've said each week in James so far, these commands and laws given to us are given not to earn a right relationship with God. Jesus has done that for us. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose again from the grave three days later to give new life to those who trust in Him. And not just new life, a new heart, a new enablement to follow God, to take action. And that's especially important as we come to our passage here today, an often misunderstood one. Our main idea in our action in our text this morning is this. Faithful followers of Christ produce. We produce. I chose this word produce intentionally because it helps us frame our thinking as we approach verses in our passage that seem to suggest that our works might save us. But rather, what James argues for here in our passage is, excuse me, it's the same thing that James argued for, or Paul argued for, rather, in Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. True believers, faithful followers of Christ, will walk by the Spirit. They'll produce the fruit of the Spirit, and they'll walk in fulfillment of the law of Christ. And that demonstrates that we've had a changed heart. Faithful followers of Christ will do things. We will take action. We will have works, fruit in our life that confirms what we say we believe. Because here is where the atheist, the skeptic, and the faithful follower of Christ all agree. They all agree on this one fact. A lack of action, a shell of faith, 
A hypocritical life. A hearing of the teachings of Jesus, but not a doing of them or following of them. That's an issue. It's a failure, as James says, to practice true religion. It is an inauthentic, fake faith. So I get our sermon title is Empty Faith, Saving Faith, directly from verse 14. Verse 14 sets up the whole passage. So let's read it together. James asks this question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The question is not, can faith save him? The question is, can that kind of faith save him? Is an empty faith a saving faith? Well, James gives us four case studies, as it were, for us to navigate this question together. So, case study number one, we have some friends. Read with me verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, James has already told us in his letter that true religion cares for the poor. True religion values all people regardless of their status. And yet we find here another example of the need to not just hear, but to do, to take action, to produce, and to serve others. Now, you might remember this. James uh, is kind of echoing the words of Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And I, I hope you pray like that. And here, James gives us an example of someone who likely has been praying that prayer. God, provide for me poor clothing, no food. God, would you give me my daily bread? So they're praying that, likely, asking God to provide. And their friend has an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus the tool or the conduit in which God answers that prayer. Oh, God, I've been praying. And then they talk to their friend. And maybe that friend will be that answer to prayer. Well, food might be a bad example in our culture. While the price of bacon is soaring, not happy about that, in the midst of inflation. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't like bacon? While we still predominantly live in a wealthy and comfortable country where our clothing and our food aren't necessarily a daily desperate need. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this. There are people who are struggling with these things. But as a general rule, that's not the case. But perhaps a more contemporary example would drive home this case study for us. Imagine. A single man or woman approaches you, approaches our church, and says, my furnace went out. 
Medical bills are piling up. I can't pay my cell phone. How am I going to play Wordle? My relationship with my children are fractured, and I'm all alone. I need help. We respond, <laughs> Burr, that sounds cold. Is there any way you can come up with what you need by yourself? Well, I hope it works out for you. I'll pray for you. You know that Christian tone people take in churches? They get all spiritual. I'll pray for you. I, I often encounter that in the South, uh, living uh, in Southern climates for a while. The phrase wasn't, I'll pray for you. It was a little old lady saying, God bless you. Well, how about an example that doesn't involve money? A brother or sister in Christ comes to church, sends you a text message, sends a cry out for help. I'm hurting. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I'm doubting God. I struggle with addiction. I'm scared of death. I'm anxious about my failing health, and I'm worried about my kids. And we respond, Christian tone, hey, I hope that works out for you. <laughs> I'll be thinking about you. I'll pray for you. Maybe. May God help you, because <laughs> I'm not going to do anything. What does our passage say to a case study like this? What does our passage say to this kind of response? Well, look again at the, verse of end, uh, the end of verse 16. James says, What good is that? What good are your words that have no action? What good is you saying you are a faithful follower of Christ, but you don't actually follow His commands as it relates to serving and loving others? James connects this case study of this friend with a spiritual commentary in verse 17. Verse 17, he says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. The friend comes here in these verses. The friend here that responds to that in need. The friend comes and he has an empty faith. He has a dead faith. A faith that is not a saving faith, because he didn't do anything, James says. Well, that's the first case study. <clears throat> what about the second one? Second case study, look at these demons with me, verses 18 and 19. But someone, counter-argument, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James' response. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You're doing well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, this is an interesting, interesting case study James points us to. First, we read in verse 18 that someone may have a counter-argument. Oh, okay, James, I hear you. I hear you. Works are important, and I agree. That is why I have works. I do things. I just leave the spiritual faith stuff at the door. You're a religious dude. I get that. 
I respect that. But I'm more spiritual minded. I'm a faithful follower. But theology, doctrine, truth, trust, nah, I'm good. I'm just about action and justice. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. That's his response. Show me. Show me how you can separate religion. Show me how you can be a faithful follower of Christ and choose either one or the other. Faith or works. Truth and belief or action. No. No, James says, it doesn't work that way. Faith is demonstrated and shown through my good works. And here's a good tweet for you. Or if you're of another generation, you can sew this on a pillow. Good works, good works make faith visible. Good works make faith visible. And isn't that what Jesus taught in Matthew 7? Jesus says this, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You will recognize them by their fruits, he says. Well, isn't this exactly what Paul taught in Galatians 5? We covered it recently. He says this, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What counts? Only faith working through love. A faith that produces and works. Well, what about Ephesians 2? Oh, for by grace you are saved through faith. Amen. Don't skip verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what's the point? True, full, saving faith is demonstrated by works. And to clinch his argument in his case study, he points to demons. Again, James is saying that faith and works are two sides to the same coin. You can't just have faith and you can't just have works. But in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And that that phrase, God is one, is probably a reference to Deuteronomy 6.4. At least that's what scholars say. And Deuteronomy 6.4 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. Maybe you've heard that word. It's a Jewish prayer that would be recited in the mornings. They'd wake up in the morning, oh, God is one. They'd go to bed at night, God is one. And the word even Shema literally means to hear. I hear God is one. I believe God is one. And James says in verse 19, if you believe this, well, good for you. You're doing well. That's great. But here's the question. Is mere academic faith enough? Can you just say God is one and you're good? Is that full saving faith? No. No. And we know that because the demons believe. They have an empty faith that is not a saving faith. They have a faith that may make mental assent to some orthodox ideas. Maybe, like these demons, 
you believe Jesus is God. They believe that. Maybe like these demons, you even believe Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross. That the Bible is the word of God. Perhaps like these demons, you know, you believe that God created the world. He created humanity, male and female. And you believe, like them, that our natural bent is sinful and contrary to God. Maybe like the demons, you believe in these biblical realities. Heaven and hell are real. This world can't satisfy you. And the Minnesota Vikings are cursed. Maybe you know these things. Maybe you believe these things. Maybe you shudder at the knowledge of some of these things, just like them. Does this kind of knowledge, this kind of belief and faith equate to real saving faith? No. Faith or belief without works, without trust, without a changed heart, without action and obedience to God's word, it's no different than the belief of demons, James says. Wow. Man, that's a powerful word. These first two case studies are convicting to me because what I see is a lack of work in my own life at times. Maybe you do too. But I'm ready for some good news. So let's go on to our next case study. And that's our buddy, Abe. Good old Abraham. Would you read verses 20 through 23 with me? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says this, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, we enter into the most misunderstood section of our passage this morning. Even while we were in our series in Galatians in recent months, and what were, what were we doing in Galatians? <laughs> we were declaring that we are justified by faith alone. Declaring that our works don't earn us favor with God. That Jesus is enough. And I, I had a sincere individual come to me and say, well, what about, what about James 2? Justified by works. Well, don't worry, here we are. We're, we're here right now. And we're seeking to answer this question. Is empty faith saving faith? In our first two case studies, James' answer has clearly been no. Empty faith with no works is not saving faith. It's not true faith. True faith produces the fruit of the Spirit. True faith produces good works. So we come to our buddy Abe, whose life, James says, makes the same argument. The word we really have to nail down here in this section, in these verses, is the word justified. Did you see that in verse 21? Read that again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, is there any difference in how James uses this word justify and how Paul uses it? Well, yeah, I believe context does show a difference. 
Let me give you a few examples to show you how there can be a difference in this. A man hits my wife, so I drop him. I'm justified. Someone misunderstands me. That happens. I offer clarity. I'm justified. I step on a Lego in the middle of the night and I scream, I'm justified. Someone speaks half-truths, so I offer a correction. I'm justified. Now, when I say I'm justified in those instances, and I am justified when I scream after I step on a Lego, am I saying and arguing, and am I using it the same way Paul did? Am I arguing that my actions result in favor with God? Am I saying I'm now righteous and bound for heaven because I laid out a guy? No. I'm saying that I'm vindicated. When I say I'm justified in those instances, I'm saying I'm vindicated, I'm right, I'm reasonable. My actions are justified. And in the same way, when James says that we are justified by our works, he's saying that our works vindicate, justify, and prove our legitimate faith. He's not saying we are righteous by our works, or as we read in verse 22, faith has action to it. Our good works are the completion, the evidence, and the vindication that we have true saving Faith, and not an empty faith. You might say, well, that's quite a stretch. James is clearly teaching in verse 21 that your works justify and save you. All right, well, my friend, you have to keep reading. Look at verse 23 again. James puts no question as to where he sits on the matter. He tells us that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abe was declared righteous. When? When he believed God. When he believed God and his promises. This was before Abraham offered his son Isaac as a vindication of his faith. This was before his good works. Abe's good standing with God came before he had a chance to earn anything. It was always by faith. He was declared righteous in Genesis 15. And he was justified by his works in Genesis 22. And if verse 23 sounds familiar, it's because it's from Genesis 15.6. A quotation of the narrative of Abraham's life when he trusted in God. You know what's really interesting? That's the same verse Paul quotes in Galatians 3. Paul says, we are justified and saved by faith alone. And then he quotes Genesis 15, 6. In Romans 4, Paul says, we are justified by faith alone, not by works. Look at Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. If you try to make the suggestion that Paul and James teach a different gospel, you have to wrestle with James immediately contradicting himself. The argument would have to be something like this. Verse 21, James says, we're justified and saved and righteous by works. Verse 23, 
we're righteous and justified and saved by faith. Well, which is it? That makes no sense. Not just in light of the whole letter, but really the entirety of the Scriptures. The teachings of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, are congruent. It is Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So is empty faith saving faith? No, absolutely not. Look to the father of faith. Look to Abe. Look at Abraham. His saving faith was one that produced. One that was imperfect, no doubt. You know, I got real issues with Abraham. And when I get to, when I get to heaven, I'm probably going to say something. It's like, yeah, you believed in God and it was counted to you for righteousness, but I hated the way he treated his wife. So was Abraham a man who lived a perfect life? No, it was flawed. It was an imperfect faith. But it was one full of good works that overflowed from a heart that loved and trusted in God. Abraham is a case study that shows us real faith is vindicated, proven, and justified by works. Real faith has obedience and works toward God. And if we don't have real obedience and works towards God, then we have an empty faith. But what about our works, not just towards God, but towards the people around us? Well, let's look at our last case study with Rahab, starting in verse 24. James says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, I don't know how many times you've read through James. Maybe you never have. Have you ever wondered why Rahab is the example James chooses as he argues for why faithful followers are people who produce? When it comes to real saving faith, who might first come to mind? Well, Moses, maybe. Or David. What about John the Baptist? What about, I don't know, Mary? Paul? No, 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 no. Those won't do, James says. Let me point you to an example of a prostitute. That's who you need to be like. Let me point you to a woman in Joshua 2, who spent her early life not knowing God, not following God, not attending a church, not using churchy language. God bless you. Didn't listen to churchy music either, probably. Let me point you to a woman who likely was desperate, who felt she had no future, who was willing to compromise herself to survive. You need to be like her. And what exactly happened in that historical account of Joshua 2? Well, maybe you're not familiar, or it's been a while. She had heard about the Lord, what the God of the universe had done to save his people, how God had changed their lives, how God was powerful, and she believed she had faith in this God. And how do we know that? 
How do we know that Rahab, hearing stories about this great God, actually believed and had faith? How do we know? Because her belief in God produced. It produced a work in her to practice true religion, to guard and protect the vulnerable men who were going to be killed. Isn't that ironic that Rahab fulfills the command of true religion that James writes thousands of years later? He says, be like Rahab. She guarded and protect. Her works justified, vindicated, proved, and demonstrated her faith. And that faith manifested itself not just in her thoughts towards God, but in her actions towards other people. Can you and I say the same? Did she know the Sunday school stories? No. Had she memorized the scriptures? Never saw them. Did she attend church with her family and read her Bible? Nope. No, her faith was not a mere intellectual one because she didn't know much. She didn't know anything. But she knew enough to place her faith in trust. Her faith was a full one. A faith that acted on what she knew. You don't need to know more, Lakewood. We don't need to know more. We need to act and believe what we already know. She had a faith that loved her neighbor and served others. James, he uses Rahab as the clincher to his argument. What if someone has faith but no works? Can that faith save him? Is empty faith saving faith? Well, verse 26 again is the clincher. For the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. The answer, brothers and sisters, is no. No. Empty faith is not saving faith. This is a sobering passage. And it should rightly cause us to reflect on the profession that we make. Are we really faithful followers of Christ? If you're not producing, no, you're, you're, you're not. But am I really producing? Maybe I ask. And there is a good chance that there are many in here and watching online who have an intellectual belief of who God is. God is one, you do well. But they don't have a full saving faith. And if that is you here this morning, I have some good news for you. <laughs> the best news. God is so kind. He's kind. God came to save people like you and I. People who have a shell of faith, who make mere academic professions but don't live it out. God came for us. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, grave to change the hearts of people like you and I. People who make mental ascent but don't live out the Christian life. There is great grace for you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Turn away from self. Receive Christ. Behold his glory and be changed by him. That's the promise of the gospel. 
in Lakewood. This letter, this passage is written to true believers. This letter is written to encourage us to consider the life that we live and the fruit that we produce. Many of you are producing faith and good works in your life. Is it perfect? Well, not from where I'm standing. And mine isn't either. Either was Abraham's or Rahab's. Our performance and works in the Christian life, they're not impressive, are they? No. Often our works are very unimpressive. But can I remind you, brothers and sisters, that if you are in Christ, God is pleased with your imperfect obedience. God is pleased with your striving to produce. God is enabling you to grow in being a hearer and a doer. He is honored by your imperfect attempts. He is honored by your humble confession and your dependence on him to produce in the Christian life. Guys, he is already at work in your life. He is shaping you more and more into the image of Christ. Could it be more? Yes. And by God's grace, it will be. One of my favorite questions to ask people, uh, and I get phone calls and emails and, and things like that, and one of my favorite questions to ask people is, how do you see God working in your life? And the discouraged individual will say something like, well, I don't. I, I see nothing. And it's always interesting, almost every single time, a couple of diagnostic questions reveals that God is working in their life because they have a greater desire to follow, to produce. Praise God, that's from Him. Even your desire to produce in the Christian life is evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your heart, either convicting you so that you would trust in Christ for the first time or graciously reminding you to press on. Oh, it's, it's all of him. Faithful followers of Christ, they produce. They produce. And that is why we take communion. I'll ask those that are serving communion, by the way, to come up at this time. But we have communion because it is a physical tangible reminder of who has produced on our behalf. When you take that little cracker and the juice, what you are declaring is that Jesus lived and died and produced on your behalf. That's what we remember when we do this. And oftentimes a, a question that I get is, well, who can take this? If you have trusted in Christ, if there is no unrepentant sin that you have not dealt with, this is for you. This is for the body. This is for faithful followers of Christ to remember and to celebrate that God is near, that he is for those in Jesus. Now, if you have not trusted in Jesus, thank you for being here. Don't take this. Don't take this. You know, it's been said uh, in, uh, by smarter, older people in generations past that communion often is a saving ordinance. 
Not that it saves you, not that you go to heaven because you eat the bread or you drink the juice. But oftentimes, communion is a very kind way for unbelievers to come in and say, I'm not producing. I have no peace, no joy, no forgiveness. I need Christ. I need a tangible, physical reminder that he's real and that he makes a difference. So if you're here, as you watch communion being taken place in front of you, may it be a sweet encouragement to your heart that you need Christ. Let me pray before we take communion. Father, thank you for Christ's work on our behalf. Thank you that you do not demand perfection of us. You call us to. You command us to cling to the one who lived perfectly, who always produced. God, I pray that as we feel this cracker on our lips and this juice, it would be a reminder of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed to give us a new heart, to give us a renewed relationship with you. God, we remember and we're grateful that you're here with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.